Let's take a moment to again pray together. Uh, God, thanks for your word uh, this morning uh, as spoken and uh, remembered by uh, your King David. Uh, Thanks for the heart that you gave him to seek you, uh, both in his profound faith and deep brokenness. Um, And so as we come around uh, the word that Jesus spoke to us, blessed are the pure in heart this morning, um, would you open our hearts to his word, to what he might teach us. Um, thank you that, Jesus, you're with us, um, that you are the word made flesh, that your spirit is with us, that your presence is with us, that you're living inside each and every one of us uh, in varying degrees, God, but you're with us. We know that. So make your presence known. Encourage us in our areas that we need more encouragement and challenge us, God, where we need to be challenged and shape us to be people uh, of your word and on mission with you. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, as I kind of alluded to, this specifically for our, our visitors this morning, we are um, in a series right now uh, called Can You See It?, which is a series on the Beatitudes. We're in the sixth Beatitude this morning, which is Blessed are the Pure in Heart. And this morning, <laughs> too bad the kids left because... Oops, darn it. Uh, to help us... <laughs> Hold on. I didn't expect this thing to be this cumbersome. I'm not going to put it on, don't worry. Although you probably want me to. Okay. This, it actually works. Hold on. <laughs> Just a second. It didn't, it didn't work that time. It worked before. It breathes, but it sounds like Darth Vader's... Um, out of shape, which I think he was. Anyway, so I've, this was, I'll just put it there for now. It, this was uh, left in our, we found in the bushes a couple weeks ago. I know, some poor child. We actually had a sign on the office doors for the greater part of the week till I told the Lake City Press staff that I wanted to use it, and then they took the sign down. But the sign did say, if you lost your Darth Vader helmet, then call this number and we'll return it. So some poor child, I needed it. So, and the reason... Uh, the reason I have it up here is not only because it's the most awesome, it's the most awesome thing ever. Like, I just look at that, and I go, I'm, I'm a bit of a Star Wars geek. Are there any other Star Wars geeks here? Good. That's good to see. There's a few of you. Spencer, I know that to be true. Uh, and so, it, I'm a geek, but it also kind of, what it, what it did is it sparked off a, um, it connects, don't worry, but it sparked off a bit of a binge watch last weekend of the Star Wars movies. So, I've I own them, and so I decided to watch a couple of them, specifically episodes six and seven, which are, <laughs> it's a test, Return of the Jedi, and, and what, The Force Awakens, so yeah, some of you are like, it's all messed up in my head, I don't even know anymore, so I watched those with Elliot, my son, who's turning seven this week, and, and not because those are necessarily like the best movies ever in that entire series, but I, I just love how they kind of connect to each other. I love some of the allusions to the stories. Um, so Ellie and I are watching these movies, and the, just the weirdest thing began to happen. I, we've seen the well, let's just say this. Episodes one, two, and three are dead to me, so we haven't watched those together. But the rest of the movies we watched together, and so uh, the weirdest thing started to happen. Elliot, whenever Darth Vader would come on the screen, he insisted that I just turn the volume down, like completely. And, like, even kind of, like, turn it off. It's too scary for him. And so, um, like, skip the scenes, do whatever. And 
especially when Darth Vader does something kind of terrible, like when he threw Palpatine into the, the reactor core of the um, Death Star. Remember that scene? Like, we can't watch that scene anymore or when he says to Luke, Luke, I am your father. Like, that scene's gone. So it's like most of the movie gone now, right? So, and so we're watching the movies, like a silent movie sort of version of um, like Mystery Science Theater sort of thing, watching these movies and talking. And as, so I started asking him, like, why? Why now? Like, this is, this is really super annoying to turn Darth Vader down. And all he said was, it's because I can't see his face. Which, by the way, just if you were in here, I'd call him out, because he doesn't do it with the stormtroopers, but that's just another thing. <laughs> Only Darth Vader, I don't understand. Maybe because he's like the embodiment of evil or something. I don't know. But anyway, I've been kind of thinking about it all week as this is sat on my desk. And so uh, kind of awaiting a claim from its owner and putting it on and trying it out and stuff. So, and the point is, is it's all about the masks we wear, right? Um, it, it's kind of this profound insight into our lives. So Alan Taylor, he's a senior editor at The Atlantic, which is a magazine I get, and he oversees the photo section. And so he did a photo essay about a year ago, uh, April 5th, 2016, called by the same title, The Masks We Wear. If you look that up, The Atlantic, The Masks We Wear, it's a photo essay of 29 photos that he took around the world, people wearing different masks all over the world, different cultures, different motivations, different contexts. Here's what he said about his essay. We wear masks for many reasons, for fun, for protection, or to make a statement. So in turbulent public settings, obscuring one's face can protect an individual from retaliation while evoking fear and uncertainty in others. With the recent rise of virtual reality technologies, masks are used to hide the real world from the wearer, whose face in turn is hidden behind the headgear. In many cases, though, masks play a more lighthearted role, allowing the wearer to take a part in a festival and become someone or something for a time. So that made me think, like, how many of us have literally tried to become someone or something for a time? Like, you've put a mask on. And you know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about Halloween. Uh, I mean, how few of us actually live our life and live it in the open, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, without the aid of a mask? And none of us can probably raise our hands. I mean, seriously, we're tempted, if not every day, then multiple times throughout our lives to put on a mask, to wear the masks in the office, be someone for something to get that raise, that promotion, whatever it is, or in a relationship with somebody you're trying to impress, or to your neighbors. You know, I had neighbors behind my house last night, kind of partying all night till like five in the morning. I just decided to give up and get up. And I didn't want to confront them because I want to be, you know, I don't want to be that guy. Uh, your children, your spouse, it's on social media. You put masks on because you're afraid of the comments section, right? Uh, Whatever, whether it's hiding something about here in church, <laughs> not that we ever wear masks in church, you know, trying to put on your Sunday best. Um, we, and we do that because often we're, we're either trying to show something about ourselves or not. And we're, and we're tempted, we're tempted, listen, we're tempted to wear masks and play different roles for each and every occasion of our lives. That's what Alan um, Taylor would say. And so to put it in Jesus' words, blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. In other words, I think what he's saying is, blessed are you when you take off your mask, when you show your true self, when you live from deep within yourself, and you allow yourself to be seen and to see. I mean, this is the profound and deep meaning of Darth Vader's story. I mean, I, I know, pushing it a little bit, but when he asks Luke to remove his mask in the Return of the Jedi so he can see him with his own eyes, 
And so we can look upon, I mean, he'd become pretty ghastly, but the last moment of his life, so he can be seen and known for who he truly was. Uh, and, and that's the deeper meaning of this beatitude, that Jesus is inviting us to just take it off and say, hey, there's something within you that is beautiful and good. And so the question on the table for us actually is how. Because, <laughs> uh, like, how would that look or work? Because it sounds great. I love the idea, Jack. But sometimes the masks we wear are protective, right? Uh, I mean, we wear them because there's stuff in our hearts, even though I've just declared that your heart is good and beautiful, that's dark. Uh, you wear them because you're afraid. If people only knew what was in there. Or you're afraid of what the world might do to you. Like, not wearing a mask sounds great, Jack, but this is the world we live in. Let's be practical, and it's a dangerous world. So that's why I want to frame today's study in terms of two challenges, uh, prevailing challenges that we all face in doing this, and then one essential solution. So two kind of prevailing challenges, one a solution toward the end of, like, removing the mask, okay? And then we can all try it on. So, no kidding. All right. So the first challenge is this heart challenge. So blessed are the pure in heart. I want to focus on the heart, okay? So what's with the heart? Uh, I mean, and let me just start by saying what the heart's not taught, what Jesus is not talking about when he talks about the heart, okay? So he's not talking about your emotions. Uh, unfortunately, that's what the English word heart means to us. And we see this, we will see this profoundly this week. I mean, Valentine's Day is in terms of gross consumer spending, check this out, the third largest or biggest U.S. holiday, and that's behind Christmas and Thanksgiving. I know there's debates around like Halloween and whatever, but set it aside. So and when you put it up again, even if you put Halloween up there, when you put Valentine's up against those two, that is amazing to me. That a, a holiday in the doldrums of February, midweek usually, you know, just about candy, could even compete with Thanksgiving and Christmas, which are tied to these huge holidays and festivals. And I think it shows a lot about our, our culture's understanding of the heart, which is to say that it's really about our emotional ties. It's about experiencing something that we, we, we only get it fleetingly, so we create a holiday for it, right? Um, and that's not what Jesus is talking about. I'm not dissing Valentine's Day, so I hope it's good. Husbands, take your wives out for dinner, do whatever. But Jesus is not talking about that, okay? He's also not rejecting, he's not talking about the mind, rejecting the mind, He's not reject this is not anti-intellectualism, okay? See, we talk about the heart, usually we hear about it, as opposed to the mind, okay? They're different. And so you have those heart people, the right brain folks, the artists, the poets, the musicians, counselors, teachers, and then you have the left brain folks, you know, uh, engineers, accountants, accountants, mathematicians, accountants, right? <laughs> I have a few accountants in here, so I just got to pick on them once in a while. And that's, listen, this is not the way the Bible ever talks about the heart or the mind. That's not the way the Bible frames it. The blessing of pure-heartedness is not emotionalism, and it's not anti-intellectualism, okay? It's something entirely different than those two. So at the beginning of the heart challenge, we're in the heart challenge, right, is our need to understand that the heart has its own intelligence, okay, deeper than the mind, but also one that embraces the mind. The heart has its own intelligence also that's deeper than your emotions, but also one that embraces your emotions, okay? And there's, there's this, all this new science around this. Uh, you can look it up. That when we're, the, when we're in the womb, literally our heart is, is being formed before our brain is. My heart's over here, Jack. 
So before your brain's formed, your heart is being formed first, which is fascinating to me because it shows that your heart is more than merely just a pump, if you think of it like that. So our senior pastor, Richard, kind of pointed me to one of these articles this week online that talks about this research, and it says this, that research in the past two decades has shown that the heart is an information processing center that can learn, remember, and act independently of the brain, the cranial brain, and actually connect and send signals to the brain. It doesn't get it from the brain. And to such areas as your amygdala, your thalamus, your hypothalamus, which regulate our perceptions and our emotions, okay? So the heart is often sending signals to your brain to tell you how to feel and react and respond. So this article says it seems that we actually have a second brain. A heart brain is what the author calls it. And this heart brain can receive and respond to stimuli before your cranial brain is able to process it. That is fascinating to me. Uh, so there's this, And there's this application for us that goes a little bit like this. Notice that Jesus doesn't say this. Blessed are the pure in speech. Blessed are you, Jack, when you preach a good sermon. Blessed are you in your motives, like when you have good motives. Blessed are you when, you're, when your actions line up with your intentions. You know? He doesn't say that. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. He doesn't say, blessed are those who study their Bible. He doesn't say, blessed are those who go on marches for justice. He doesn't say, blessed are your Sunday morning worship services. He doesn't say, are your youth groups, or any of those things. And by the way, I'm not, or your doctrine. Like, I'm not saying any of those things are wrong. That's all good. And we need to have good doctrine, and it's important to have Bible study, and it's good to have a worship service, and it's good to go on marches and things like that. I mean, that's fine. But that's not what Jesus is blessing. He, he's saying, pay attention to your heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. That's the, the calling first and foremost is to mind your heart, uh, to live from your heart. I think this is significant today because the overwhelming tendency is in the other direction. We bless, like, we love to bless Bible studies. We love to bless, you know, justice, right? We love to get out there and do things. We love to bless results, return on investment. We love to bless those things. Words. <laughs> we love, well, let's not go there. But so in some way, we reduce faith when we, when we put faith in that bucket to this sort of intellectual assent to a given number of propositions. That's, I mean, if you put faith in there with all those other blessings, that's what you get. And Jesus is saying, stop. <laughs> that's actually not the way of faith, or at least where faith begins. He takes us on this very inward journey. Uh, he says, you know, it's the starting point of life, physically, biologically, and it's the starting point of faith, and that's your, your heart. It's where you're going to experience healing and transformation inside your heart, in your core. That's actually what the word Heart means core. So in the Latin, so if you were to read the Latin Vulgate, which is whenever you see Pope Francis up there reading the Bible, he's reading from the Latin Vulgate. It's one of the first translations of the New Testament. And this beatitude in the Latin Vulgate is beate mundo corde. Blessed are those who are pure in their core. You've heard it like from your physical trainer, lock your core, right? Uh, the core is the very center of you. Like when your core is strong in your body, the rest of you is held together. We know that to be true. The core of the earth is where all the elements of the earth reside and, and help sustain the rest. The core of an apple is where the seeds that gave life to that little piece of fruit are, are held. The core is the, is, the, is the center of all things. And the heart of faith, which is what Jesus is blessing, is the core. It's the thing that sustains you. The core of your thoughts, the core of your feelings the core of your actions, the fountain for your motives, okay? 
the nucleus, you might say, of your faith. That's what Jesus is talking about. And that's real Christianity. That's what Jesus is saying. He's pointing to the, like, real stuff inside of you, deep down, which is just, like, living from deep within, I'll just admit, is a lifelong and difficult journey. And I've been on it. I know a lot of you are on it. Like, to live from deep within yourself as the person who you truly are. I mean, there have been thousands of books written about this, right? Uh, like, to live as the beloved. I talked about this before from the front. And, man, I could go on and on about it. Uh, but how does that work for us? To live as one in whom God delights. And I, I kind of want to just leave that question out there for you right now. Because it's a challenge. I'm just going to admit it. Like, you can read about it. You can, we can talk about it. You can meditate on it. But until I think you've begun to, like, peel back those layers of the simplest thing that God has ever said to Jesus. You are my beloved son. You know, I sat with that. I'm reading through the Gospel of Mark right now. And this is early in the Gospel of Mark. And I just, it, Jesus is baptized. I love Mark's simplicity. And it just says, you are my beloved son. And in you I delight. And I sat with that for the better part of a week, and I actually just opened it up again this morning, and it's so profound. But until you're willing just to sit with something that simple as a declaration over you and allow God to peel the layers of it back, you're never going to understand what faith is. So Jesus is saying, blessed are the pure in heart. When you get to the core of yourself, you'll experience blessing, okay? So that's the first challenge, the heart challenge, and it's a great challenge. But there's a second challenge, okay? And it's the purity challenge. Blessed are the pure in heart. Okay? Now, so what is purity of heart that Jesus is talking about? And I'll tell you, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is because when you see that word or hear that word purity, <laughs> it's not only so vague as to be unreachable, like utterly unreachable, like what is it even, and discouraging, like what does that even mean? But it also can seem like this sort of moral perfectionism, Right? And, 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 and there's, like, flawlessness, faultlessness. And that can lead us down all kinds of dangerous paths. So I'll just say we have a major, in the church, we have a major PR problem. I kind of stumbled into the church late in life. And we have a major PR problem, friends, major, <laughs> especially when this, when this word purity comes up. So when I, when I say purity, what's the first thing that came to your mind? Virginity, sexuality, the whole... Purity movement, right? How many of you were raised in that time and you're like teenagers and you, you lived within that? I'm not going to ask you if you wore a ring or anything because I know there's a lot of people that did and have had very positive experiences with that. And I also know that a number of you have had very, very painful and negative experiences with that. Uh, and whatever you think about it, I'll just say this. This is a little bit of a soapbox I'm on. This is not that. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he's not talking about that, number one, Okay. Number two, when you reduce purity to sexual choices that you made inside or outside of marriage, doesn't matter when you were 15 or 25 or 40 or whatever, inside or outside of marriage, doesn't matter. If you reduce purity to that, you are reducing the gospel to something that it's not. Uh, the, pu the purity paradigm, as some authors have called this, uh, it, turned, it turns sexu sexuality into a possession, Okay this thing that we can cling on to in order to sort of retain our own value in the world, which is not only proven to be damaging, like I said, to relationships generally, especially, I'll just say, as a dad of a daughter, young women, uh, 
but when we do that, we believe, we believe that gospel is not the gospel of grace. So here's this. We have a paradigm of grace, not a paradigm of purity. That's what Jesus comes to teach, which means there's nothing we can do, nothing that can be done or happen to us, and nothing that can take away our status as, beloved, like I said, beloved children of God. Nothing. There's nothing. And so you can't earn God's grace by remaining pure. You can't lose God's grace by not remaining pure. God's grace is a free gift for us, held out for us to receive, no matter what. And that's the danger in that movement, okay? And so my question for us, before I move on from that real quick, is will we just stop talking and teaching as if purity can be ours by sheer effort, okay? Uh, and, and instead make known to the body of Christ, to the church, every member of it, male, female, single, married, gay, straight, young, old, doesn't matter, that no matter what they've done, no matter who they are, they are beloved, that there is enough grace in God's kingdom for even them. Can we start teaching that? And then start talking about purity, okay? So off the soapbox. <laughs> I mean, just think of how free we'd be and how free the church would be if we did that. It'd be amazing. Okay, so purity as a word is, has a really lex, uh, rich and lexical meaning, okay? And this, it's this word that can mean a few things. Let me get into those real quick. It can mean to refine or clarify or purge, okay? So this is from the world of metallurgy, and uh, as well as like cleansing agents like OxyClean, okay? So Jesus is talking about OxyClean. We have OxyClean. So this is what first came to mind. Some of you use shout. Doesn't, I'm not saying one's better than the other. So there's this great example of that in the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 3. And Malachi 3 is, is the bridge, Malachi 3 and 4 is the bridge between Old and New Testament. Last two chapters of the Old Testament. And what Malachi is doing is talking about this time kind of foreseeing this time when the Messiah, Jesus, will come to the earth, what it's going to be like, and what he's going to do, okay? And so this is what Malachi says, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. I'm going to send my messenger, this is God speaking, who will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. Then suddenly, the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. That's Jesus. We're the temple. Okay. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, he'll come. But here's the hard thing. <laughs> who can endure the day of his coming? It's like a, it's kind of a rhetorical question because none of us really can. Uh, who can stand when he appears? Because he's going to be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He's going to sit like a refiner of, of silver and purify the Levites, or just put, put us in those terms, purify us and refine us like gold and silver, okay? So what this is saying is that Jesus, who's this Messiah, is going to come day and purify the church, refine it. Anyone who calls themselves a follower of Christ. Like fire and like soap. Jesus is like fire and like soap, like OxyClean. I know, that's kind of a crude way to look at Jesus. But like soap, he's there to take out the stains from cloth and fabric. That's what, that's what soap does. It's like an acid that removes stains, okay? And we've often, we've heard talk about this, though it's kind of ironic to think of it this way, that the blood of Jesus removes the stain of sin. Because we all know, especially parents, that blood stains. So... Don't go down that rabbit trail. But that's what the blood of Jesus does, okay, in a theological sense. And then fire, uh, you know, this whole process of refinement in, in the terms of metallurgy, what fire does is it removes the dross and the sort of slag from the metal you're trying to refine and get silver or gold or whatever, okay, steel, and just filters that through fire. And so in this sense, purity just means to be unmixed, okay, to have integrity, 
to have a singularity of focus, um, which, by the way, is like the de- de- textbook definition of idolatry, to be duplicitous, to have double focus. That's what idolatry means. It's not actually about uh, little wooden statues or like that. Like, not that. Here's what idolatry is. Uh, it's purification. Here's David, again, in Psalm verses uh, 24. He says this, Who can ascend God's holy hill? He's kind of, it sounds like Malachi. Who may dwell in his holy place? He or she who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up their soul to an idol. So that's a picture of what God is coming to do, to break and destroy and melt down. Like if you can think of Exodus and the golden calf, melt down our idols. So like I said, idol, idolatry is not about wooden statues. It's not about little golden calves. It's, it's when your heart loves, worships anything more than God. When there's anything in your life more important to you than God. Uh, anything that absorbs your imagination more than God does. Anything that you seek to get meaning from more than God. Um, Tim Keller calls this a counterfeit God. And it's so that and when he says there, he says, anything so central to your life that if you were to lose it, you'd be lost. So think for a moment. Is there anything so central to your life, your marriage, your ability to ski or do sports, uh, your, wealth, your wealth, your personal, like the savings in your account right now, your home, your kids, anything so central to your life that if you were to lose it, you'd be lost. You don't know if you'd be alive today. You could walk in these doors. You've probably made that into an idol, and we all have them. I'm, I'm with you on this, because when I say those things, anything more central to my life, anything I think about more than God, I mean, I'm not sitting around my living room on my couch thinking about God all the time. Okay, I know you aren't either. And so we have to reflect on that. So that's what idolatry is, and so what it means to be purified is to have that all burned away, so to speak. Uh, have, have God take that away and, and give us a, a pure and holy passion for him, Okay. That's what this is talking about. Uh, so you're blessed when you, when you have that, okay? To, I, that's not the only thing, though. I want to move on to one more thing. So it's, it's singularity of focus, refinement. It's kind of uh, freeing us from our sin, okay? But there's a third thing that I really want to open up for you here. And that's this idea that purity can mean to be unfolded. So like any word, it has several entries, so there's singularity of focus, there's kind of uh, freedom from sin, and then there's this unfoldedness or openness. Literally, it means, if you, Hebrew has word pictures, so this is originally a Hebrew word. It means to take the pleats or the folds out of something and to expose that what's hidden, okay? So if you can imagine like a, a curtain that's folded, or uh, you've seen this in movies or maybe at your dinner table, napkins that have things in them. Like, we see this all the time with our kids. Like, you find little pieces of broccoli or pork chop or a cake. I'm kidding. I'm just making sure you're awake. We've never found cake and napkins. So, um, but this is what Jesus is talking about. Blessed are you when you're pure in heart. Blessed are you when your hearts are being unfolded, when your heart is unhidden, when it's exposed, Okay. Uh, and, and in that way, purity has a lot to do with sincerity. That would be a synonym for purity in here. This is the way First Timothy, Paul puts it in First Timothy. The ultimate aim of a Christian is to love. We all know that. 
Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We've been taught that from day one. But Paul goes on and says, love which springs from, this is my translation of it, but love which springs from an ecosystem of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So it kind of combines purity with sincerity, which literally means faith that is out in the open, faith that's genuine and authentic. And, uh, and this connection, I think, between sincerity, authenticity, and, and purity is interesting because I think it invites us to sort of transparency of heart. Like you're saying, hey, look through my heart. Like if you could look into my life like it's a clear lake and just see all the way to the bottom, you know? We say this in our culture. What you see is what you get, right? Or just be yourself. Just be yourself. I mean, that's how we say it. And I'm just going to say, though we say this and we love this around Bethany especially, like authenticity, sincerity, all that stuff, uh, that's a major problem as well. When, when I'm inviting you toward that, major problem. Adam Grant, he writes uh, books. He wrote this book. I don't know how many have read it, called Originals, How Nonconformists Are Changing the World. He's a speaker, kind of a provocateur a little bit. So he, he, he wrote in the New York Times last summer this really awesome article. You need to read this. Unless you're Oprah, be yourself is terrible advice. And it's a really cool article, okay? So just go find it. Uh, and it's not safe for work. So don't just read. I mean, it's got, uh, maybe it is safe for work, but don't read it to your kids. It's a good article, but it's meant for adults. So he says this. We're in an age of authenticity where be yourself is the defining advice in life, love, and career. And he goes on to quote Brene Brown. And we all, love her. we love Brene Brown, right? This research professor at University of Houston, like wholeness, I mean, like wholeheartedness and all that good stuff, right? So he says, as Brene Brown uh, defines that, this authenticity, it's the choice to let your true self be seen. We want to live that way, Adam Grant says. We want to live authentic lives, marry authentic partners, work for an authentic boss, vote for an authentic president. In university commencement speeches, he notes, be your true self is one of the most common themes just behind expand your horizons, and just ahead of never give up. Really, be your true self. This is what we're teaching our kids. Just be yourself. You can do anything you want. Just be yourself, right? But for most people, this is where the article really takes a turn and why I'd recommend it to you. Grant says, be yourself is terrible advice. And he goes on to say this, somewhat facetiously. He says, if I can just be authentic for a moment, (laughs) this is him, I'm quoting him, nobody wants to see your true self. I mean, really, we all have thoughts and feelings that we believe are fundamental to our lives, but are better left unspoken. You've all had those thoughts. Maybe you've had a few in the last few minutes. Don't share those with me later, maybe. Unrevealed, kept secret. He goes that. And do you see the problem that this raises for us as Christians? Like, we love the idea of authenticity, open-heartedness, sincerity, unfolded hearts, unmasked lives. Love that. But in reality, what lies behind the mask is not pretty. Like Anakin was a ghastly figure to look at in that movie. I mean, ghastly. And that's why my son doesn't want to lay eyes on him. And a level that's profound. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, we all, he's like the patron saint of Bethany. This giant. And we love his story, you know, he's like pacifist and then, you know, like, then he takes on Hitler and he dies. Do you remember, have you read that poem? I gotta pull it up. Uh, Hold on. I'm not going to tweet this. Um, I had pulled it up before. Okay, do you remember that poem he wrote in, the, in his Gestapo prison? 
cell, like last few days of his life. It's called Who Am I? Listen to this. He says, Who am I? They often tell me I could step from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I, I would talk to the warders and freely and friendly and clearly. I mean, these are Nazi warders. Think of that. Uh, who am I? They also tell me I would bear the days of misfortune equitably and smilingly and proudly. Am I really all that which other people tell me of? Or am I only know what, myself to, what I know myself to be? Restless and longing and sick like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath, <laughs> uh, compressing my, th- that's, uh, like, like hands are compressing my throat, yearning for colors, uh, thirsting for words, trembling at the expectation of great events to come, powerless, weary, faint, and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? Am I this, that, or the other? Uh, man, who are you? <laughs> I mean, like, you take that mask off. Mother Teresa, I don't know if you know her story, but she struggled with, like, you read her journals, deep loneliness and spiritual desolation her whole life. And yet she became a saint recently. Uh, Henry Nouwen just struggled with his, his sexual identity his entire life, could never reveal that to the church because of the shame that would have come upon him. So we have these people in our, in our, in our world that if we, really, if we really saw their hearts, ooh, I don't know if I'd like to see that, you know? And this way, purity of heart, an unfolded heart, uh, more than pointing to authenticity, I think, and sincerity, though I, those are great values for our church, I think it's, it's pointing to vulnerability, which is very different than authenticity and sincerity. I mean, just think about this metaphor for a moment of an unfolded or open heart whose dark recesses are exposed. There is a reason your heart is beneath, I'm not a doctor or nurse, but beneath like your sternum and all the dense muscle and tissue there. Because really, I mean, it's, it's protective. It's being protected. And when you, re, when you expose that, think of that theologically, when you expose your doubts and your discouragements, your sin, your besetting sins, the things like if you knew me and my story, you might run for the doors. I'm not kidding. And, man, Jesus is inviting us to essentially lay down on the operating table of his grace, because like I said earlier, there's enough grace for you. There's more than enough grace for all of us. And just allow him to do, pardon the pun, open heart surgery. Like, to open us up. Open us up. Because he's enough. And that's really the ultimate solution I want to get to real quickly. So, blessed are the pure in heart. And I think what he's saying is, blessed are the open-hearted. Blessed are the open-hearted. And I've never had open-heart surgery. Uh, I know some people here who have. I know it's incredibly risky. I know it's very painful. I've seen the scar tissue on people's chests after that. Uh, I know how debilitating it can be. But in the end, it's the only solution that Jesus suggests for the sickness and the darkness in our hearts. And the Bible tells us, you read it through and through, our hearts need work. Our hearts need a lot of work on them. Like I said earlier, that's where the work of Jesus in our life begins, is in your heart, and it needs work. Your heart, your, your, you, you cannot sustain faith without the work of Jesus on your heart. He needs radical intervention. This is what God is saying in Jesus. Uh, our, our hearts have become hard and stony. We've become cynical a little bit, especially today. 
Um, they can become full of bitterness. You know, you have broken relationships. You, you pray for healing. You pray for things. And you get a little bitter, you know? Uh, John Calvin said, our, our hearts are factories for idols. <laughs> they just create things to worship all the time. Worship athletes. Worship money. Worship the mountains. You know, we worship all kinds of things. So we need open hearts, spiritual open heart surgery to heal all that. And it, it, maybe it doesn't sound nice to you. Maybe it does sound nice to you. I don't know. But you're probably asking, how would that look? Because, you know, it's easy to say, harder to do. So let me, the reason we read Psalm 51, I want to give you three handles to take home, okay? Three, I hope, practical things that come right out of that psalm. Because this is David. If you know David's story, Psalm 51, uh, this is literally the guy who God said, this is a man after my own heart when he was just a young boy. Yeah, in the field, Jesse's son. This is a man after my own heart. This is the guy who wrote Psalm 24 that says, who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? This is him at his coronation. Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So he kind of looks at himself and says, yeah, my heart's good. I can be king. He, and you know David's heart. It wasn't pure. Because right after that psalm, what happens? He commits adultery with Bathsheba. Has Uriah killed? I've heard he, he broke seven of the Ten Commandments in one day. That's a bad day. Uh, so you look at that in terms of purity. Fold after fold. His heart is just folded in on itself. Folded on itself. And this is David. I mean, this is the guy whose throne Jesus sits on. Think of that for a moment. And, and so David cries out to God after that season in his life. These are like his journals, psalms. I love the psalms because they're just David's journals. And he's crying out to God. Psalm 51, Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. And that's a powerful acknowledgement by David of how folded in his heart had become, how divided and, and duplicitous it had become, how dark, broken. <laughs> and, but he acknowledges it, okay? Because he, he knows that he needs God's intervention. He knows that he can't go any further in his story uh, without some sort of help from God. So he's saying, basically, I think, lay, I lay my life down, God, at the operating table of your grace. I need your help. Do surgery. My heart's sick. Open it up. Bring healing, okay? And so here's what this statement he says, I think, holds for us. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit in me. Three things by way of conclusion. Number one, create in me a clean heart. We never operate on our own hearts. You've never given yourself open heart surgery. There's never been a, a person on the planet of the earth who's done that. And we cannot give ourselves spiritual open heart surgery. You don't, there's no DIY solution for this. This is David saying, God, create in me a clean heart. Do that to me, okay? We always receive surgery from God. Uh, that's the only way you'll, receive, you'll, get in, you'll get this clean heart that David's praying for, is to really lay your life down. And you'll do that in a, a spiritual posture. I mean, I'm not saying let's all get down here and just lay down, okay? You'll do it in your own way. But that's the first thing, is, is for the Holy Spirit to enter into your life and do this work. God's indwelling presence in Christ, working within you to purify your life, okay? And he's promised that. That's the good news. He said, I, I, I will do a good work in you until the date of completion. That's what Paul says. Um, that's our only hope, too, that Jesus is working in us, that he is actually, if we lay our lives down, doing the work. That's the only hope we have. Otherwise, this is a waste of your time. Okay? And so 
Ask God this week, will you unfold my heart? And will you bring healing to it? Where there's darkness, where there's bitterness, where there's cynicism, where there's brokenness. That leads to number two, creating me a clean heart. This is not heart renovation. <laughs> like, you know, the Hestads here have remodeled their house. Nearly what Jesus is doing, uh, it's an entirely new house, right? But you, re- you set out to renovate it, right? But So Jesus is not saying, I'm here to renovate your heart. What do you want done? Create is the language of Genesis. This is new creation. <laughs> the old, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, a new has come. Create in me, same language, generative language. This is a new thing. This is Jesus, this is what's behind Jesus' call in, in John 3 to Nicodemus, where he says you have to be born again. He's saying start over. He's not saying, you know, like to pray a prayer and, He's saying you have to start over at some point in your life. He's telling them that's where life needs to begin. It's a restart. Um, That's where we get this new heart, is is in this generative time of life. When you say yes to Christ, it may be one moment, it may be moment after moment after moment, you receive a new heart, a brand new one. Um, And new is different, completely different. It's not your heart with some changes made to it, modifications, so you can go faster and further and higher. It's completely new. The old you is gone. And that's actually good news. That's good news, I think. Um, and finally, this is, notice at the end of David's prayer, so creating me a clean heart, and then he goes on and on and on, and he says, uh, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, God, you will not despise, okay? And I just, you know, when I read that this week, I, I was like, God, I thought you were doing heart surgery. <laughs> Did I lay myself down on your grace? It's going to be all good. And then David kind of ends the prayer there. Ugh, right? What's this biz, business about like a broken spirit and a contra, or broken heart? Like what's that all about? And uh, I have this little de- daily devotional on the Psalms that Tim Keller wrote, and I've been reading through it. And so I f- I, whenever I'm st- stuck on one of the Psalms, I just flip to it just to kind of get a little insight. And this is what he said about Psalm 51. He said, uh, a broken spirit, contrary heart, it's a heart that knows how little it deserves and yet how much it's received. Uh, this is David's acknowledgement of the costly grace of God, both how lost he is and then how loved he is. And so I, I think the practical piece there for us is, is beginning to pray in this coming week uh, that brokenness is not self-loathing. Oh, woe is me. I'm so broken, God. Please forgive me. It's, it's actually uh, this joy we can experience in relationship with Jesus. Uh, let me tell you what I mean by that, and then we'll close. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is one of my favorites, just a sec. Do you remember how Paul puts it? Uh, he talks about this treasure we have in clay, clay jars, that whole band. Remember jars of clay? I know those guys, by the way. So he says this, uh, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side. See if this is you. Uh, Not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, not destroyed. We always carry around in our mortal bodies the death of Jesus, so that, here's the good news of a broken heart, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. Okay? And then he goes on, all of this is for your benefit, this broken heartedness, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving 
to overflow in the world to the glory of God. So the metaphor that Paul uses there, and I think what David is kind of inviting us to pick up on, is this idea that in those broken places, God created me, do a work in me, give me a new heart, but don't just give me a perfect heart. The brokenness that he's inviting us to receive from Jesus is the death and resurrection of Jesus, which reveals to the world that there is, there's hope, there's life, there's redemption through a story that seems very backwards and upside down. That's what the treasure in a clay jar is. It's literally a lamp that shows light. That's what we are. We have, it's, I know it's mixed. We have new hearts, but they're kind of broken in places so they can reveal the life of Jesus. And so what I want to invite us to do this morning by way of response is, I hope you all received one of these again. Some of you weren't here last week. And um, this is how I want to invite us to respond in the last couple songs. I want to invite the, the worship team forward. Um, I, want, I, want you, I want to invite you just to reflect on one question. Where in your life, where in your heart, do you need transformation? Not renovation, transformation. Where do you need God to do something new? To change, like change your life, okay? Um, it could be something spiritual, giving you a desire for God. It could be something very practical, physical healing, a, a job, a relationship. It could be something in between. But where do you need God to show up and do something today, okay? So I want to invite you to write that down. And last week I had the folks that were here keep it. <laughs> this week... I want to invite you to bring it forward to the cross for two reasons. One, it's a, just, I think it's an act of worship. Jesus, this is for you. But also, I'm headed down to um, Central America this week to visit a couple Agros communities. So I'll tell you more about Agros when I get back. We're entering into a relationship, a mission relationship with them as a church. And um, so we talk about mutual transformation in our mission relationships. <laughs> and I was reflecting on that the other day. And realized, man, I've never really come into one of those partnerships or relationships saying to that community, here's how our church needs change. I just kind of ask, yeah, how do you want change? How can we help you change? And it's, it's kind of a one-sided deal. So I would love to bring, and all six of our locations are doing this today, some evidence from the midst of our community of ways in which we here in Seattle and Bethany Community Church need transformation in our lives. And just ask these communities uh, in Honduras and Nicaragua, can you walk with us through what we need help in for the next few years? Wouldn't that be cool? And then we'll bring some blanks with us. Eric Henderson, who's the worship director at Green Lake, is going with me. And um, we'll bring some back with what those communities tell us. And we'll begin a relationship that way. So if you could respond this morning just really humbly, but also knowing that you're bringing it before Jesus as well. This is an act of worship. So let me pray for us, and then we'll respond. Jesus, we thank you for not only your word, uh, but that even in this moment, as I prayed earlier, uh, as you revealed yourself as the word made flesh, that you are living inside of us um, in this profound way, um, that you've taken residence in our hearts. And God, some of us have, have held on to spaces in our hearts um, where we either feel too broken to give those over to you or they feel too dear to us <laughs> to give you control over those things or maybe even we haven't identified the places in our hearts that we haven't relinquished to you. And so, God, I, I declare uh, 
I, I agree with you that you're good, that you're gracious, that you're great, and that you promise to renew our hearts. You promise to redeem our hearts. You promise to transform our hearts. So I pray for my friends here, myself even, that we begin to surrender our hearts to you this morning and to give our hearts over to you so you could do the work of renewal. Jesus, I pray this in your name. Amen. As you're responding, we'll have a couple songs, and you can bring your cards up here. And then uh, Sean Chandler and Libby Chapman, who are part of our prayer team, would love to stand with you and pray and just agree with God that he's at work. So if you're feeling prompted by something, I just invite you to take that step and go over and talk to them. Okay? Let's worship.